Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm your weekly host from podcast, a professor at the University of Florida that really feels this is an important part of communicating the importance of science, particularly in the area of new frontiers of molecular sciences, to the average consumer. And it's about fortifying people who are interested with good information that can help them be those communicators. So listening is step one. Talking is step two. And that's why we're talking biotech. And this is episode 200. Now over the last few years, or really the last year, I had a lot of thoughts about episode 200. I thought that we would just shut this down um, at that time. You know, let's do something else. But there's more downloads than ever. And when I look back on the series, this is probably one of my favorite achievements. It helps me teach and it helps me share beautiful stories of experts. And uh, all it is is an archive. It's a tremendous archive of many, many great episodes. So we'll just keep going. The other thought was to do episode 200 about what hap- is happening in my lab group or the endless smear on social media. But you know, why do that? It's complaining. And the way to get over the problems is to continue to produce good media. That's what we'll do. We're going to continue to win the middle, the people who don't know who to trust. And I'll earn their trust additionally by connecting uh, experts to the average person. And that's what this is all about. And I'm privileged to speak with compelling guests. I'm glad people are willing to speak with me. Um, I just ask questions. They are the stars of the show. So go back and listen to some of my favorites. Like number 117, that's a 93-year-old plant breeder, Dr. Maxine Thompson, who talks about her roles of being a woman in a field dominated by men. Listen to the episode with Dr. Linda Bartoshuk where she talks about her coming up through science as a woman in science. Listen to episode 143 in the development of the orange flesh sweet potato for Africa. Dr. Jan Lowe tells a compelling story. Episode 95, when Dr. Christine Latin was harassed by PETA just because she did beautiful work. These were really emotional episodes for me. They're human stories and stories about how far we've come socially in advancing different aspects of of women in science and the stories of, of others trying to get together the research and overcome obstacles in order to share beautiful work. That's the utility of continuing to produce a weekly con, uh, podcast. It's a barometer of change at a time of rapid change. And imagine the day when we can celebrate golden rice, reaching families and children and helping alleviate blindness. Imagine when Dr. James Dale 
and Dr. Priver Nemanja when their vitamin A bananas finally reach Uganda and Kenya, and when Dr. Lena Trapathi's uh, wilt-resistant bananas are released from behind barbed wire fence to smallholder farmers. Those are events we will cover someday. We'll talk about when it changes. We'll talk about when people have access to technology that can change their lives or save their lives. And we'll raise a glass together and we'll celebrate together and we're going to do it right here on this podcast. And I hope it happens before episode 300 than episode 1000. But when it happens, we'll talk about it. Now I've been approached about advertisement. Um, I've been told that I could receive something like $600 a month right now. I've resisted. Uh, the little blurbs I run in between the middle, these are all for free. Uh, they're just to promote others who are doing beautiful work, like today's episode with Rob Syke, you know, his son Nick Syke, who has no ideas media, does beautiful work, and uh, folks like Michelle Payne, who also publishes excellent books that really help us uh, distill science for the average person. I want to promote those folks because they're helping to do what I'm doing. It's informing and communicating. And so I provide those, those opportunities at no cost. On the other hand, I'm approaching a million downloads. So I sit here and do the math. And if I had a dollar for every download, I could afford to do nothing else other than create scientific media and hire a team of experts to help me do that. If I had a dime for every download, That'd be kind of nice. <laughs> It'd be about $100,000. That would be easily uh, allow me to hire somebody to uh, produce the website, do the production on the episodes, uh, translate them to other languages. This is something that takes me four hours, six hours every week. And it'd be great to have that time to do something else. If I had a penny for every download, it would allow me to cover the cost of the website, the server space, the bandwidth, things that I bear personally, just because I want to share this medium advertiser free. So if you'd like to send me a penny, <laughs> um, not you, Monsanto, that, that, I love the idea, but let's not go there. Um, it, it, you see where I'm at. Uh, let's keep this as it is, and we'll just change the guess. We'll revisit some of the former ones, and we'll incorporate some new segments, maybe news and updates, and I have some ideas on that. And remember, you are welcome to co-host anytime. Uh, join me on the podcast with an expert you would like to talk to, and, and I'll do the heavy lifting, and people can enjoy listening to somebody else rather than my nasally drone. Come join me. You're more than welcome. So thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and this week our guest is Rob Syke. In his new book, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. And now we go to Olds, Alberta, which is up in Alberta, Canada, to an old friend, Rob Syke. Hey, hi, Rob. Hey, good morning, Kevin, and uh, thanks for fitting me in. Uh, late for you and early for me. Yeah, well, hey, I, I sh should mention I'm in Australia. <laughs> I'm down in Geelong, and uh, it's uh, we're on opposite sides of the earth, but able to get together to talk about uh, your new book. But let, let me give you a quick introduction. So Rob is an agricultural entrepreneur. He's the CEO of Psych Management Group and the CEO of Dot Autonomous Farming Solutions. He's the uh, founder of AgVisor Pro and former CEO and founder of the AgriTrain Group, which later was purchased by Trimble. And uh, Rob's here to discuss his book, Food 
How We Feed the Future. And it's a book that I had the opportunity to take a look at and read uh, and was really blown away by how it really is a Goldilocks of agricultural books. I think it really does satisfy many needs here. And I won't talk about that as so much because I'd rather talk to you about it. So uh, welcome to the podcast again, Rob. Thanks, Kevin. And Kevin, congratulations on your 200th episode. You've brought a lot of good news to uh, the world. <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of good. I mean, it seems like a big number to me. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, well, it's in a way, it's just another number in, in the series. And uh, I'm really excited that you're able to join me because we can kind of put a punctuation mark on the next hundred. So well, let's talk about um, the book. First of all, why did you feel a need to write this book? Well, Kevin, my background is uh, is all practical agriculture. I, I still work on the ground with farmers. I run a couple of peer groups for par- farmers called the Power Farm Groups. I'm very closely connected to farmers. And in particular, what in the book I call, Kevin, uh, Farms of Consequence. These are farmers that make their living by farming. So these are farmers that are dedicated full-time to farming. And I felt that there was such a strong and such a large disconnect between what the public perceives going on on the farm and what is actually happening on the farm that I felt a book should address that. And so while the book will be very interesting to agricultural people in terms of where we came from and where we're going, uh, when I wrote the book, I had to come up with an avatar in my mind, somebody I was writing the book for, and uh, I'm writing this book for a 33-year-old uh, mom in, a, in an urban setting with a couple of kids. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that this book, Food, for, Food 5.0, will create a bridge between the urban uh, reader and, uh, and the farmer on the ground. Well, I think it does that. I think when you talk about this idea of farms of consequence, this was even an eye-opener for me because we always talk about, you know, one to 2% of farms uh, or of people are connected to the farm in some way. But when you talk about farms of consequence, that number really goes down even further. So could you explain that a little bit? Well, exactly. The, the, you know, the, the, the statistics say that, you know, 2% of uh, 2% of, of people living in North America are, are farmers. Well, 2% uh, is, is a really, really, really high number. And so when you think about that, 2% of North Americans is like 7.4 million farmers. Well, I, I don't think there's 7.4 million farmers of consequence out there. Um, I mean, to be uh, classified as a farmer on income tax, you have to have, I think, uh, in Canada anyways, gross farm receipts of $10,000, which means that a whole bunch of people are, are falling into this farmer classification. And I, I think the number is more like 0.2% or like 740,000 or maybe even 0.1% of, uh, of, of the North American population is a farmer of consequence. Somebody who's making a million, million and a half dollars worth of gross revenue off of off of farming. And in, in Canada, I, I like to say that we could fit most of the farmers of consequence in a large hockey arena in Canada. Uh, there's not a lot of them. And so when it comes to their voice, farms of consequence have almost no voice. And yet they grow 80% of our, of our staple crops. 
So that's the first thing is I'd like people to understand that A, these are family farms. B, they're largely incorporated because they're businesses. C, they make their living off of farming. And D, there's not many of them. Well, I hope they don't all go in the one stadium at one time. Mm, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, I know when you're uh, reading the book, it really breaks down into a, a broad swatch of chapters that uh, really cover a wide variety of things from the beginning with maybe seeds and technology all the way through mechanization and um, um, the, the future of, uh, of, of farming with precision agriculture. Is there any particular part when you look forward? Well, let's go backwards first. What are some of the big missed opportunities that we've had in farming? Well, I think one of the, I don't know if, what, I don't know if it's a missed opportunity, Kevin, but certainly something I try to bring up in the book is, you know, Regardless of our food religions, whether you're paleo or vegan or meditarian or organic or GMO or non-GMO or conventional or all the different food religions that are out there, I think that if we put our hands up and try to agree on something, and that is that for as long as there's people on the planet, Kevin, uh, we need to make sure that agriculture is infinitely sustainable. And so the, the first part I'd like to start this part of the conversation with is, what would make agriculture infinitely sustainable? And those areas include soil health, of course. We want the soil to be healthy. Water use efficiency and water balance and greenhouse gas balance from farming. Uh, some people would say animal welfare uh, could be fit into this area. And the one that's most important, when most people forget, is, uh, is farmer viability. Because without farmers being economically viable, there is no economic, uh, there is no, there is no uh, agriculture infinite sustainability. So the first thing that I'm working on in the book is, is try to get everybody on the same page saying, can we at least agree that the big, hairy, audacious goal is that agriculture needs to be infinitely sustainable? So there's two things that we start the book off with. One is a discussion around infinite sustainability Second one is to make sure that, uh, that people understand that farms of consequence are out there and that most people are disconnected from them. Well, one of the parts that's really uh, comes out early in the book is when you say disconnected, um, is your connection to farming and how this goes all the way back to your childhood that you come from a lineage of farmers, uh, from folks in, in uh, Ukraine, actually, who, who landed in uh, northern Alberta. But is it, um, it, even in your own family, you were really uh, one of very few who stayed in the agricultural business. So how, how do you um, think about that in your own experience and how that relates to everybody else who is making decisions and policy about agriculture? You know, how would this, this disconnect, how bad is it? Well, well mo most people have an opinion of agriculture that really is centered around their grandfather's or grandmother's farm. And I really think we need to get rid of images of the little red barn and the round fendered pickup truck and farmers and bib overalls. And if that's your, if that's your, if that's your connection to farming, if that's your connection, well, you're, you're widely off base in terms of what's going on in the farm today. My, my two sides of my family's really both Ukrainian descent, some Polish mixed in, but both came from Canada. There was, 
My mom's side, my dad's side, six children each, has 12 children landed in Canada. Of those children, six were farmers. Of those children, uh, there, there's only one that's involved in agriculture, and, and that's me. And of my nieces and nephews, uh, the only person who has a, a touch to agriculture is my son, Nick Syke, who runs No Ideas Media and does, does work on agriculture. So in two generations, we've gone from people that are very closely affiliated with agriculture to people who have no clue about agriculture other than an image of their grandfather's farm. And so there's a huge disconnect there, Kevin. How risky is that from a food security or let's say national security standpoint? I mean, you've got, you know, Canada and the U.S., two places that have more similarities than differences. But when we start seeing, you know, like policy in the States now with the tariffs and stuff, how precarious is this position of not having any, having so few people as farmers of consequence? Well, it's very precarious. I mean, uh, I conclude the book with a statement that if you put, uh, you know, fertilizers and pesticides and GMOs and maybe even throw in robotics, if you put those things to a vote of the public, it would all be voted out. So this is a vote of the ignorant not a vote of the informed. And the consequences at farm level are, you know, are huge. So what I do in the book, Kevin, is I take the reader through the five iterations of agriculture. So the first four iterations are the first part of the book, and the fifth iteration is the second. Those five iterations are the era of muscle, the era of machine, the era of chemistry, the era of biotechnology, and now the era we're moving into, which is called convergence, this convergence of technology in the farm. So the first thing I try to do is bring the reader up to speed from, from where we came from. And, uh, you know, um, I have a, a funny story. My, my mom was a prolific garden planter, as was my baba or my grandmother. And, you know, I remember, I don't know if it was a quarter or a half acre of potatoes, but until you've harvested a half acre of potatoes by hand, you know, you, you don't, you romanticize the era of muscle, but it ain't no fun when you're out there. Uh, and I'm glad we don't harvest potatoes like that anymore, other than small plots. <laughs> yeah. And that was a really nice part of the book. It really does show two things. One, how each step from each version of agriculture, not only increases one person's ability to feed more people, but each one of these eras is a lot shorter as we go forward. That, that's really that's really true. It, the iterations are happening faster, aren't they? They are, and, and that's really what, when I've, I've given talks before about the need to do sustainable intensification because or sensitive intensification because the issue is, and this is a huge one in Florida, that we only have a tiny amount of arable land to begin with on the planet. And that's going away because in places like Florida where, you know, prices are low on things like tomatoes or strawberries, it sometimes for a farmer makes more sense to just bail out and sell the land to a developer and take it out of agriculture than it does to continually maybe break even every fifth year, maybe make a little money here and there. And so the idea of intensification and but infinite sustainability, as you put it, uh, it's really necessary. And so how, how are we going to be able to continue to do that going forward? 
Well, it's a combination. Uh, you know, um, the era of muscle the, the still exists in agriculture. We know that. Largely in areas where subsistence farming is, is still um, occurring. And hopefully we can get people out of that as soon as possible. The, the era of muscle still exists on farm, but the muscle farmers use today is their brain. It's the number one muscle they use today. The number of decisions are, are huge. The era of machines still exists today, um, and it's morphing into robotics. The era of chemistry, you know, um, I talk in the book about a lot about organic farming, Kevin, and I think that we should all organically farm. We should all use less fertilizer and less pesticide. But to do that, we need to utilize the tools that the whole organic industry is vilifying that you talk about so often on, on, your, on your podcast. And, and that is the, the biotechnology. And I talk in the book of where that's going. And I, I talk about CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR-Cas13. I talk about gene silencing. And I've even brought in, Kevin, a little uh, area to talk about uh, carbon nanotubes and how you wrap DNA around nanotubes to make changes. And, and this is all uh, coming together at breakneck speed on the farm in something called convergence, where we, we have data, we have sensory technology, we have communication and connectivity issues, we have uh, uh, the ability to, uh, uh, to autonomize a lot of functionality at farm level. And, you know, people forget, Kevin, that the number one constraint on, on most farms today is, is qualified labor. Yeah, we, the, the RBC or the Royal Bank of Canada is releasing a paper right now that says in Canada, in the next 10 years, there'll be 123,000 vacant jobs at farm level for which there are people poorly equipped to fill those positions. And it'll cost us $11 billion in GDP of unmet productivity. And Canada is one of the few countries that can grow more food than it can consume. So we are dependent upon as an exporting nation to feed this world. We have to increase food across the planet 60 to 70 percent by 2050. We have to grow 10,000 years worth of food in the next 30 years. And so the pressure upon agriculture is amazing. And, and one, again, that the most people, most, most people in the public would not realize. So I don't know if I answered your question. I rambled a little bit, but it, it does speak to the, the weight of importance on this issue. You know, it wasn't really rambling at all. It was actually right on. What we're, the big question for me right now is who's going to do the work, either as the principal producer, you know, the, the, far, the farmer, if you will, but I really do imagine we're entering, we're entering an age of automation and mechanization. And when you talk about, um, in, in a bigger way, um, with the, when you talk about convergence, you've spoken before about um, today about, uh, uh, or actually in the book, that we're talking about self-driving cars and how this is big excitement, right? But this has been on the farm for decades. Th that's correct. I mean, uh, we've had uh, what I think, probably going into our second full decade now of something called auto steer on the farm. When when you get uh, a piece of equipment that's uh, call it 70, 80 feet in width, like a like a a, a drill, a seed drill, or a, a high clearance sprayer that's one hundred and twenty feet, um, those pieces of equipment are guided by GPS signal. And those uh, pieces of equipment are guided down to uh, the, the sub-inch accuracy. 
So as you're seeing, uh, as you're driving through the countryside and you see these straight lines, it's, it's not that farmers are that good at driving straight lines. I mean, some are, but majority of them are, are, are being driven uh, because they have SWAT guidance or auto steer. Now, auto steer was a technology that started out and had its bumps. Uh, we had light bars and we had different types of devices on steering wheels. But today, uh, auto steer has exponentially been adopted at farm level to the point where it's almost ubiquitous. There's, there's very few farms out there that run without auto steer today. And so it's an example of how, how fast technology gets taken up on the farm. I mean, our smartphones didn't exist 11, 12 years ago. And it'd be hard pressed to find somebody today that doesn't have a smartphone or is listening to this podcast on a smartphone. So when you get technology that works because of the, the ability to communicate that technology rapidly through society, that technology is uptaken very quickly. It's the same at farm level. The, the problem we're having at farm level is you can't bring a city person, most city people, onto the farm. A, they don't want to do the physical and the muscle work. They, you might want to do it for an afternoon, but then it gets pretty redundant. So labor is a huge issue on farm. And number two is, and more importantly, the really important job on, uh, jobs on the farm acquire a high degree of techno uh, technology sophistication. It's not uncommon to see three, four, or five computer monitors in the cab of a, of a tractor that's seeding or spraying. That's not uncommon. So people think that farming is a simple occupation. It's not. It's the most complex occupation I know of, the number of decisions, and you throw on top of it the technology that has to be utilized in the cab of, of modern equipment. It requires a great deal of sophistication. I would stack most farmers up against computer people in, in urban settings. Well, the thing that makes it even more challenging is that when you're using a lot of technology, but you're doing it on a uh, environmental background that's constantly changing and that day to day you can make some rough predictions, but you can't control it. And so you're, you're not only sailing the ship, you're sailing the ship in the waters that you, you have no idea what's coming next. And that's why this technology and it dovetails is so important for farmers to be able to intensify in a uh, reasonable way. Um, we're, we're talking with Rob Syke. He's the CEO of the Syke Management Group and his new book, Food 5.0, uh, How We'll Feed the Future. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. I just hate going to the store. All of these labels, free-range, GMO-free, certified Chernobyl radiation-safe. It's so confusing, especially in the area of food technology. Well, hi, lady shopper. I couldn't help but overhear that you were showing signs of distress about food and farming. Yes, strange guy, I don't know. I'm concerned. I don't want biotechnology, synthetic biology, or precision agriculture in my food. Mother Nature gave it all the precision I need. Wow, you seem indeed lost and confused. Why do you feel this way? Well, for years, I've listened to these luminaries, Food Babe, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Avocado Wolf. But now I wonder, are they for real? Do I need certified GMO-free salt? Does salt even have genetics to modify, random stranger? 
If only there was a concise book that explained it all with reputable science that I, a person without a science degree, will totally understand. Wait, I need to introduce you to Food 5.0. Food 5.0? Is that, is that gluten-free? Well, sort of. See Food 5.0 with a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, a new book by Robert Syke. Sounds interesting, random science man. Tell me more. Well, the book is a substantial science-based book looking at modern farming. It's written for everyone, the average person that has concerns or just wants to know more about food or farm technology. From genes in the field to sensors on the farm, it's really a great book. I have a copy right here. Indeed, this looks like a comprehensive work that may challenge my assumptions and answer so many questions. Thank you, random grocery store stranger! No, thank you for challenging your own pitifully misplaced beliefs. And reach out to Rob or even the Talking Biotech podcast host if you have any questions. Will do. Imagine, there's something other than coffee at the grocery store that will make me feel smarter. Find Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, on Amazon or from wherever you can buy books, if there are such places anymore. And hurry before food activists buy them all and burn them. This is a needed piece of work that has a place in helping people understand what's on their plate and how it got there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Robert Syke, who's the CEO and manage of the Syke Management Group, along with many other things we mentioned. Um, we're talking about Food 5.0, how we feed the future. And we're speaking about uh, this new book that is out now and available on Amazon and every place near you, Rob, or where, where do you find it? Yeah, we're launching on Amazon, and then hopefully we'll get it in through all of the rest of the channels, Barnes and Noble, and so on and so forth. So a little bit of work to be done. You can download a, a Kindle copy right now for a for an opening uh, for an opening price that's really really uh, reasonable, and uh, it's available in paperback. And I'll be bringing it out in hard copy in a couple months. Okay, that sounds really good. So let's talk about some of the issues that are um, brought up in the book. There's, it really covers a lot of interesting territory. And I mentioned earlier that it really is kind of a Goldilocks level, that it has sophistication in the technology, but is accessible. And I really like that. Um, I think it hits the nail on the head and uh, probably as well as any book that I've read so far on the topic. And you're, the parts that go into um, a lot of detail that those are who are technology geeks like me with uh, um, at the molecular level um, really appreciate covering things like sensors and um, and the larger scale stuff that you cover. But let's go to some of the hot button issues and things that we should talk about. What's happening right now with the murder of a molecule? You know, the, the glyphosate issue. Well, the glyphosate issue is an interesting one to watch because other than the IARC uh, and their... Um, they're morally, uh, morally uh, lacking uh, work that they did uh, saying that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, the only organization in the world of consequence that says, says so. There's a, there's a really interesting change going on right now, and that is that in spite of all of the negative press with glyphosate, it still is one of the safest benign products we use in agriculture and its, uh, its uh, availability to farmers is critical if we're going to reduce soil erosion and 
and, and keep moving towards infinite sustainability. So it's an important tool. And the EPA just recently signaled that they were not going to allow California to list uh, uh, the warning on the glyphosate or the Roundup jug that says Roundup is a probable carcinogen because the EPA has done exhaustive studies and determined that it's not. So this is kind of a turning point. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the lawsuits and with the, the trials that are pending based on this latest ruling from the EPA. And I'm glad that uh, world organizations such as the Canadian CFIA and EPA are starting to stand up and stand their ground on, on the foundation of science. And uh, so this is going to be interesting to watch. And I talked about that in the book as well. I think it's important for people to understand, for city people to understand that when they see a sprayer going across the land, what they see coming out the back end of the sprayer is water. Water. It's anywhere between 5 and 20 gallons per acre of water. Water being sprayed, uh, and it, the water is used to carry maybe a pop can of, of product, a crop protection product, like a Roundup. It's being used, that water is being used to carry that pop, pop can of product and spread it evenly over, over the size of a football field. So when you hear these memes about farmers dousing their crops with chemicals, absolutely not true. The active ingredient have, have gone down remarkably in agriculture, and it's because uh, we're doing a better job, because the chemistry is a better job. And, and for example, would, would you believe that America and uh, North America, Canada and the U.S., would you, would you think that it uses more or less chemical than, than Europe? Kevin, what do you think the public thinks? Well, and, uh, the public says that uh, North America is swimming in chemistry and dousing fields and all kinds of toxic stuff, and the EU doesn't use anything because uh, they're all natural. So I'm staring at, uh, I'm staring at numbers <laughs> right now on my screen. It says that Canada uses one kilogram of active ingredient per acre. The United States, 2.2 kilograms of active ingredient uh, per hectare. So United States is 2.2, Canada is 1.0 kilograms per hectare. Um, the United Kingdom is 3, France is 2.9, Italy 5.6, Netherlands 8.8. Um, so when you stack up what's going on in the EU versus what's actually happening in North America, because of EU's policies, the precautionary principle and because of what they're doing to really uh, limit the ability of farmers to have access to biotechnology, the chemical load on the environment in the EU is way higher than it is in North America. And our production in North America is higher. Uh, so it's because we have access to these technologies. So if the EU continues to move down this path, it is and will, will turn into the Museum of Agriculture on the planet, save for Boris Johnson. In Boris Johnson's first speech, the UK has signaled that it's going to pull away from EU policy, especially around biotechnology, which I think is an interesting signal and one that's absolutely necessary if we're going to have infinite sustainability of agriculture because we need science. Well, it's also a question of competitiveness. And when you look at uh, countries like China and India, um, even though they may rumble and say we're not 
getting, uh, we're not doing this or we're against the technology. Um, I know plenty of people there on the ground that have been building biotech crops for years and animals too. And so this stuff is either happening there and nobody knows about it or it's coming. And so how is the West ever going to compete against powerhouses like that where, who have infinite labor um, yeah, because they can make people work? Um, on the farm. Uh, and how do we do it with restrictive t- when we're restricted on the technologies we can use? I mean, how, how does the EU even think they're going to be able to compete? Well, it's, it's an impossibility. I mean, they, they can't. Um, again, uh, I, I just came across some data that says the German crop this year of, for oilseed rape or canola in Canada, but oilseed rape, the oilseed rape crop in, in Germany is expected to be the lowest since 1998. In other words, their production keeps going down. In France, they're losing about 15 to 20% of their oilseed rape acres per year because farmers can't fight flea beetles and other pests that are coming on board. And in UK, blackgrass, which is a weed that's uh, in, in wheat crops, is so prolific and they have no tools to combat blackgrass that their, their production is stymied in terms of cereal production. So unless farmers in EU uh, end up eventually getting some of these tools, they will be relegated to the back bench of, of agriculture production on the planet. Because you're right, places like China and places like India, slowly India, even Nigeria are adopting more liberal and more scientifically based policies with respect to bringing technology to the farm, such as uh, whether it be uh, the genetic engineering, but the new technologies, Kevin, this right up your alley, which is CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR-Cas13, gene silencing, which, you know, they did in the Arctic apple, um, or, or nanotube technology, which allows us to, to wrap DNA around a carbon nanotube and slide it into a cell. These things are going to revolutionize agriculture, producing new crops and and biosynthesis is going to make new fertilizer products, new crop protection products. And it's a, what do you think of it? What do, what do you think of what's going to happen in the future here? <laughs> well, you're, you know, me getting out my crystal ball is pretty uh, optimistic. And I think we're going to see we can't even predict what it's going to look like in five years. I mean, five years ago, gene editing with nuclease uh, directed edits. So the whole CRISPR or tailings and all the other things we talk about here on the podcast, the, the, all of that technology was barely in existence uh, in any kind of applied way. And now it's in the field. And I think that there's luckily we've been able to have good policy, at least in North America, with respect to deployment of those technologies. And it hasn't been restrictive. Uh, it has been in the EU. And I don't know how they're possibly going to keep up without having gene editing on board. So wow. you're right. I mean, yeah. having um, having a, a Great Britain sending out some signals here saying that they're going uh, to, that they're going to possibly be working with this technology is a big deal. And everywhere we let, read online, you know, everybody talks about climate and how that matters and what's happening with, uh, with climate change. And how does all of the new technology, be it genetics or mechanization, how does that help the issue of climate? Well, climate changes. Agriculture has to adapt. So whether it's uh, drought 
or uh, whether it's too much rain or whether it's uh, uh, heat uh, or lack of heat. Canada has been very cold this year um, in, in our part anyway. Uh, we have to always be adapting. We're growing, uh, Kevin, north of the 49th parallel, we're growing corn and soybeans now. We never did that before. And that's a combination of, of, of growing patterns changing, heat units perhaps moving further north, and, and genetics, of course. Um, farmers are going to need the tools to, to uh, have scientists breed crops that will allow them to adapt to climate changing wherever that may be. Issues such as soil salinity, where, where water management hasn't been uh, properly done, sooner or later, you're going to have to have salt-tolerant crops that can begin to rectify the soil. And when you combine the technology that, that you folks could do on the bioengineering side with what I'm working on right now, which is in the robotics area, we have a, a future that's very exciting because... We can combine the, the life sciences with the technology sciences to really make some big changes here. Well, you said the magic word with robotics. I mean, what's going on right now with, with automation on the farm? I mean, you're front and center on this. What's going on? Kevin, what's going on the farm right now is, is really amazing. Again, I, I spoke of the, uh, the constraint of labor on the farm um, and the cost of equipment. I was with a farmer the other day where the, the tractor is, is nearly nearing a million dollars and the air seeder is another $750,000 and he's got some fertilizer tanks behind there and he's got two of those units. And so you're, you're talking, you know, north of three, four million dollars just for a seeding operation and you have to have men in those pieces of equipment. And, and so what we're seeing is maybe a move to the opposite direction. There, there are lots of robotics companies out there, such as Swarm Farm in Australia, where you're at, that are starting to go in the opposite direction. They're using smaller devices to, to spray the crop. We see a lot of it in viticulture and in orchards and things like that. However, I'm currently CEO of DOT, and DOT stands for the inventor's mother, Dorothy. She was multifaceted, multi-talented, so... Norbert named the robot after Dot, and Dot is the largest agricultural robot in the world today. It's 173 horsepower, and it's a U-shaped frame, Kevin, so it allows Dot to connect with a variety of implements, such as a seeder, or a planter, or a sprayer, or a spreader, and so you can be moving this one platform, uh, this power platform, between multiple pieces of equipment, and the advantages are that the equipment is smaller. So instead of having a 90 or like a 80 foot air drill or 70 foot dot is seating with 30 feet, but you could have two or three dots working at the same time. And the capital cost is much lower than conventional equipment because we don't have a cab and we keep using the four tires on different pieces of equipment. So our capital cost is lower. Our cost of uh, running the machine is lower, soil compaction is lower, and we can have one person running two, three, or maybe four dot units in a field. Um, so this is some of the leapfrogging that's going on in technology. And then as dot is making her way back and forth across the field, doing an autonomous seeding operation, Kevin, we can mount sensors on dot. So whether they're soil sensors 
or whether they're topography sensors in in-crop thermal sensors, we're going to be gathering huge amounts of data uh, as these robots pass back and forth over the field. And this is going to move towards something called AI. And everybody hears about artificial intelligence. I like to utilize the term augmented intelligence because farming, well, unless you're indoor farming, which is factory farming, indoor farming is where all of the facets of production are controlled through heating and ventilation and lights and stuff. So that is factory farming. Uh, outside is not factory farming. You've got to re react to things. So I think that with the data we're going to pull, combined with the fact that we can send DOT out on, on, on self-guided missions in the field, I think farmers will be able to react to the vagaries of climate and, and, and pests quicker. And that's going to be a really exciting to see what farmers do with robotic technology going forward. It really is amazing to me. And I think the good the side of this, if there's you know, a real silver lining of a very good technology, is that this is the kind of stuff that actually could engage another generation and seeing how their relevant skills and coding and computational whatever, computational prowess, can apply to a really important question. And can you imagine even in the next 10 years where something like DOT would allow um, a farmer to really do an operation from the inside of a, of a warm office and be able to essentially run everything from planting the harvest from inside. Well, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and coupling with that, Kevin, is one, one trend that I think will still be at farm level for quite a while. And that is, in spite of how high-tech agriculture is going, I still believe farmers will want some high touch before they make a decision. And um, so what I mean by that is that I think that before a farmer makes a decision to lay out $100,000, $150,000 worth of crop protection products, he's going to want to talk to an expert. And this leads to another area in the book that I've been working on, which is uh, the uberization of knowledge and wisdom. And so what I'm trying to do here is uh, while we're talking technology, I think we still need to create a human interface for farmers and so what the uberization of knowledge and wisdom is, is the connection of farmers to experts anywhere on the planet in real time. And that's, that's again, it's a little commercial here, but that's what I, that's what I put together with AgVisor Pro. AgVisor Pro is the uberization of knowledge and wisdom connecting farmers to experts in real time, audio, video, screen and screen sharing, picture sharing, everything to solve problems. Um, because when a, when a problem looms on a farm, a farmer has to make a decision in very rapid, rapid order. And so we have all of this going on. And I, I also talk in the book about the fact that all of this technology is really sexy, but unless it's underpinned with foundational agricultural knowledge and principles, precision agriculture and poor agronomy is nothing more than poor agronomy precisely applied. So it's really important <laughs> that farmers get good advice uh, and, and not abdicate everything towards algorithms and, and technology. Uh, that's really an important point. And really what is a beautiful part of technology being enabled and being able to flow here and having farmers connect with experts through, you know, um, 
almost live portals, you know, that can get do this in real time. Do you really feel that the, all of this technology and all these opportunities are a place where, say, people who are currently coming up through school or in college, that they really should be thinking about ways that they can contribute to this or integrate or start their business in these areas? Yes, uh, I do believe so. I'm, I'm speaking to you from my home in Olds, Alberta. It's also the home of Olds College. And later on this week, after this recording, we'll be running something called the Ag Smart Show. The Ag Smart Show is an expo for farmers and technology integration on the farm. And what Olds College is doing, Kevin, is Olds College is launching a brand new program called the Technonomous Program, basically pulling the foundational stuff of agronomy together with technology layered over top of it. These are the types of people, these are the types of young people that we need coming out of our institutions. And there's going to be a lot of jobs for them because in spite of the fact that we're going to have more robotics, a lot of the tractor drivers are going to leave the industry. They're going to leave anyways. They're most of them 75, 80 years old. So a lot of these guys are going to be gone. Farmers are going to be looking for ways to scale their businesses. Robotics will fill part of that, but we're going to need to have technology trained people to make sure that these things are working and so institutions have got to gear up to not only teach the agricultural fundamentals but we need people that are gifted in GIS and GPS and shape files and know how to program and run robots so how's that for you know a new vision for agriculture I think it's awesome. And and I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it from you. Um, and I've met some of these folks when I've been up in Canada uh, in a, some of the meetings. There's a lot of um, religious colonies, you know, the folks who traditionally say that they uh, maybe were technology averse or that it wasn't something in keeping with their personal beliefs. But how have some of these groups uh, taken to technology? Well, there's several, uh, several kinds of farming groups out there. The Amish are one that a lot of people are familiar with who don't have power and largely driven by horses and stuff. Uh, it's funny to see uh, an, uh, an Amish farmer uh, spraying a field with technology that's, that's ground driven on a, on a sprayer pulled by a horse. But in Canada, we have uh, uh, a, a, a large farming community called the Hutterites. And Hutterites, again, are uh, a religious community that uh, typically have somewhere between 80 and 120 people living together in a, in a communal setting. But these people are actually very high tech, very switched on, and uh, they utilize a lot of the, the, the modern uh, farming technology. Um, they're some of the largest hog producers in the country. Um, they farm uh, fairly large, vast tracts of land, and, and, uh, and I'm talking here uh, farm size of... Uh, easily 10,000 acres for many of these guys. And, uh, and they also are, are great fabrication people. So we're seeing a technology adoption at a very rapid rate at, at, at that, in that, uh, in that uh, community as well. Um, it, 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 is, it is worthwhile pointing out, and I didn't say this, that when you're talking the farms of consequence on broad acre agriculture, Kevin, we're talking about farmers that are farming 3,000, 6,000, 20,000, 50,000 acres. These are not small operations. Again, they're out there. They're a long way from the city. They farm vast tracts of land, and almost nobody knows who these people are, yet they produce most of our food. And, and the Hutterites would be an example of a, of, a, of a group that does exactly that. 
Yeah, I've met them at meetings before. The Hutterites are they're um, amazing knowledge sponges. I mean, they come and ask questions, and they uh, if if you're lucky, they'll pin you down in a stairwell and and talk to you for an hour about you know what you know about the technology and is it safe and is it something they yeah. that they can use. And it's it, I found it so exciting because the people who appear to be on the outside, uh, the most traditional and old school, you know, like, you know, fell out of the 1800s kind of uh, traditional farmer, you know, um, look, um, they're the ones who are so geared up about technology. (laughs) Exactly. You know, as we're, as we're winding this up, Kevin, I, uh, I was working in my book and I got to these little areas that I was writing that were, were quite preachy. They're, they're quite preachy. They're like, they were kind of Rob, standing on his soapbox and and my editor and I were working on this and we weren't sure what to do about these things and uh, I had mentioned at one point in time well you know it's just me me on a rant and so we included these rants in in the book they're called Rob's rants and and they're really uh, they're really quite funny but they're 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 quite they're quite poignant uh, you know like the, one of them says, Consumers are often fooled by labels. They'll pay extra money for non-GMO spinach when there's no such thing as GMO spinach. All spinach is non-GMO. Why pay more for the label? Um, Another one says uh, about uh, climate change is, uh, finally, how come people are quick to point at cows but have somehow forgotten that there were up to 40 million buffalo burping in North America? By the way, us North Americans, we fart out 43 million pounds of methane annually. Maybe we should invent some human plug device to reduce our methane. It would be a big seller and we could generate our own carbon credits. So I've I've got these rants that are through the book, uh, you know, uh, that I, I think are pretty funny. So, well, I do. Anyway, I'm biased. Is that a per capita number? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, well, the, the, the rants were actually a good part of the book because they break up the flow of it a little bit here and there. And, um, and, and it really do, you know, I hear your voice when I, when I read them. Um, so it was a really good addition to the book, you know, going forward, what do you think is going to, what do you predict if you had to get out your crystal ball? Um, what's going to happen in North America in the next few years with respect to, say, genetic technologies as well as robotics and automation and data? What do you imagine the farm of 2025, 2030 is going to look like? Well, if, uh, the assumptions that I make in the book and the assumptions I'm making in business uh, are that uh, for, for the foreseeable future, Farms are going to continue to consolidate because of economies of scale. I, I, I think that that's going to continue to happen. We've talked about the labor issue on farm. I think that's going to continue to be an issue on the farm. Uh, connectivity, Kevin, we didn't talk about that, is a really big issue on the farm. You know, these farmers are running five, ten, twenty million dollar farming operations, and they can't get internet contact uh, connection. On, on most of their farms. And I, I think that's really, you know, you can't run a smart farm with a stupid internet connection. And I think we have to assume that sooner or later, uh, the, the technology geeks, the big uh, billionaires are gonna take care of that problem. Um, I think that in, in the coming years, the ability of a farmer to grow uh, and to track how he is growing um, product 
will lead to more niche marketing. In other words, if you want wheat that's high in selenium or wheat that's high in zinc, and I can produce that on the land base that I have because I'm blessed with high selenium in my soils, and selenium has been shown to reduce prostate cancer in men, then maybe that's a, a functional food. And I talk about functional foods in the book as well. Um, I do see continued pressure on, uh, on resources. I, I think that you know farmers don't want to spend more money on crop protection products or fertilizer that they have to, and yet the global demand for food will increase. Um, I think that exporting nations in particular is going to be big pressure on them to meet global food demand. We've, we've done it uh, before. I think we can do it again. The major thing that concerns me, Kevin, is, is panic policy driven by politicians who will pass laws based on ignorance and not science. I think the I have great confidence that agriculture can feed the planet. I have great confidence that we can feed a 10 billion or 11 billion uh, people population on the planet. I, I believe we can do that. I believe we can do it today if, if we're given the tools. The question is, are we going to have the tools? And so efforts like the book, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, are important. The podcasts you're doing are important because we need to get this message into uh, the moms and dads of the worlds that are out at, living in the city. And, um, you know, the trust level amongst urbanites with respect to agriculture is declining. They still trust farmers, but they just somehow don't trust agriculture. And that's very strange. Um, and we have to get this story of farms of consequence into people's hands. And so uh, in some small way, I hope that the book helps to do that. So if a listener has a copy of your book, uh, how do you, what would you like to see them do with that in order to continue to carry that water and continue to carry your message? Well, I, I'd actually like the listener to buy a few copies of the book, one for themselves. <laughs> okay. I'd, like to, I'd like for them to buy one copy for their sister or brother-in-law living in the big city who's got an opinion, but very few facts about agriculture. And if, if a person listening to this podcast right now is from a rural town, I would like to buy a copy. Like I'd like a copy to be bought and given to the library because I think the kids need to read this stuff. I think kids are very intelligent and far more discerning in, in the age of social media than we give them credit for. And I think that the static around the anti-GMO movement, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the food religious movements that, that come and go. I think that people are starting to realize that there's maybe another side to the story. And so I would hope that the book can get in libraries so that people can use that as a reference. Um, I, I just, you know, and there's only one of me, so there's only so many keynote speeches you can give and so many places you can travel to. Um, but that, uh, you know, get the book into the hands of uh of a, uh, of a, of a sister-in-law in the city, um, pass along this podcast to, to city people, uh, follow, follow Nick Syke, uh, at no ideas media, uh, K N O W no ideas media. Cause Nick puts up great videos on agricultural science, follow people who are in science and agriculture. And let's see if we can start to turn the tide on some of this negative stuff that's based on false propaganda. 
No, that's an excellent way to kind of put a bow on this. I think that it's even more, and I hate being Mr. Scary Fear Guy to try to motivate people, but I really do think that ignoring the necessity of the food producers to continue to be able to sustainably produce food by restricting farmers or handcuffing them with respect to technology, it's a question not just of food security, but it's a question of national security. And I think, you know, if you, and I've said a million times before, if you don't want to buy foreign oil, you certainly don't want to be buying foreign food. And uh, from either a safety side, but also from just the fact that it would be really difficult to be beholden to another nation to produce the food that you would need to uh, drive your commerce and to defend yourself. And so I think that getting people on board with the idea that agriculture is their friend and working for them is a really important one. And your recommendations about the book are spot on. So, right. well, um, let me just ask you that way. So uh, as we conclude then, Rob, is there anything that you'd like to leave folks with? And once again, tell them where they can get a hold of the copy of the book. Well, I'd like to leave the listeners with a thought, and that is that they should not be fearful of the food on the shelf. They should not be goaded into paying more money for butterfly, non-GMO labels that are largely bullshit. They should not be fearful of the food that's on the shelf. We live in a time where the production of our food is, is as safe and as economical as it ever been. And uh, people who are stirring the pot and fear mongering are usually doing so to drive a higher uh, margin for their stickers on their product. So that's the first thing we shouldn't be fearful of the food. Um, I would encourage the readers to go to Amazon again, and uh, the book is available there, eventually other channels, but it's available in Kindle format as well as uh, soft cover and eventually hardcover. And my hope is, Kevin, that I'll have an audiobook available when I get a chance to tape it. So there it is. Not and right. I want to thank you, Kevin. I want to thank you for the work that you do and uh, allowing me to be on your 200th episode. Uh, it's uh it's great to be on Talking Biotech, and uh, I really am honored that I could have a chance to talk to you about this new endeavor, this new book that, that I've written. Well, thank you, Rob. And, and when you say tell people to go to, to go to Amazon to get it, that's the uh, website, not the river. <laughs> just wanted <laughs> yeah. to... And you can just, you can just look up Rob Syke, S-A-I-K. I've got uh, two books there. The first one is called the Agriculture Manifesto, 10 Key Drivers That Will Shape Ag in the Next Decade. I wrote that in 2014. And this one just released in 2019, Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. Oh, very good. Well, thanks very much, Rob. It's really nice to talk to you again. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Say hi to Nick for me. And yeah, I will. And you try to get a little bit of sleep. I know what it's like. If I, I was in Geelong just not that long ago. I was doing speeches with GRDC. And I hope you get down to Torquay. Uh, down to the ocean there. It's great down there. I, I'm not even sure where I'm going. <laughs> I, I, I just showed up and they uh, they said I'm busy for yeah. the next five days. So that's, you know, hey. Good. They well, you'll be, uh, you might be in Ballarat or, or Bendigo and these are all cities that I was in. So yeah, yeah, cool. All of the names of the cities down here sound like tools from the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> Don't use that on stage. That's not going to fly. 
Well, thank you very much, Robin. Uh, you know, thank you listeners for listening to the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, share it with friends, write reviews, all that good stuff, and uh, keep on listening. I have the next few episodes already recorded, and we're doing a whole lot more with gene editing and animals and, and humans, uh, believe it or not, and uh, lots of other cool topics that will be of interest. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.